1: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Political nominating conventions have been part of American politics dating back to 1808, when the Federalist Party held its first gathering to select a nominee. Every four years, Democrats and Republicans meet in an arena where they debate a party platform, listen to a lot of speeches, often wear silly hats, and cheer on their candidates. This year, that will not be the case. The Democratic Convention is now virtual with no presence in Milwaukee, while the Republicans continue to put together some sort of a schedule for Charlotte. Coronavirus, economic uncertainty, racial unrest, all key moments in a year like no other. Time magazine captures this political environment with its latest cover story, How COVID 19 changed everything about the 2020 election. We will talk to the author of the piece, Molly Ball, in just a moment. But first, from the C SPAN video library, some key moments in past conventions. We begin in 1932 with Franklin D. Roosevelt accepting his party's nomination in Chicago. Then in 1968, Richard Nixon in Miami Beach. In August of 1980, in New York City, Massachusetts Senator Edward Kennedy formally dropping out of the race as he challenged then President Jimmy Carter. In 1988, George H.W. Bush in New Orleans, the 2004 Democratic Convention and the keynote address by a little-known state senator, Barack Obama. And finally, in 2016, in Cleveland, Donald Trump.
0: My friends of the Democratic National Convention of 1932, I appreciate your willingness after these six arduous days to remain here, for I know well the sleepless hours which you and I have had. Eight years ago, I had the highest honor of accepting your nomination for President of the United States. I, again, proudly accept that nomination for President of the United States. But I have news for you. This time, there's a difference. This time, we're going to win. And someday,
1: long after this convention long after the signs come down and the crowd
0: stop cheering and the band stopped playing may it be said of our campaign that we kept the faith may it be said of our party in
1: 1980 that we found our faith again
0: my opponent won't rule out raising taxes but i will and the congress will push me
1: to raise taxes and i'll say no and they'll push and i'll say no and they'll push again and i'll say To them, read my lips. No new taxes.
0: The pundits, the pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states. Red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats. But I've got news for them, too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states. And we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We coach Little League in the blue states. And yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. There are patriots who oppose the war in Iraq, and there are patriots who supported the war in Iraq. We are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the Stars and Stripes, all of us defending the United States of America. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will
2: make America safe again.
1: And we will make America great again. God bless you and good night. I love you. Some past party conventions from the C-SPAN video library. This year, another casualty of coronavirus. And joining us on the phone is Molly Ball, the cover story of Time magazine. And boy, it is a trip down memory lane, isn't it?
2: It sure is. sure is.
1: Give us the essence of your piece as you put this together. And what's your overall takeaway of how this has really upended all aspects of American politics?
2: Yeah, you know, I felt like uh over the course of this pandemic as it's been unfolding and from where I sit as a as a political reporter, obviously uh my life's been uh disrupted in in the ways that all of ours are and in in, in an election year I would normally be out on the road pretty much full time, right? Going from swing state to swing state. But there really is no uh campaign trail to cover this year. And and I felt like I you know, I've read different Articles about what's happening to vote, the voting process, what's happening to things like the conventions, what's happening to Donald Trump's approval rating and the horse race. But I wanted to bring it all together and try and look in a holistic way at the way that this campaign really is going to be defined when we look back in history, when some future C-SPAN host uh, uh, looks back on on 2020. Uh, It's going to be defined by the context of of the pandemic really in every way. It's the logistics of things like conventions, the the fact that they won't be happening in person really at all and, and will have to be radically reconfigured. It's the way that the candidates are campaigning, figuring out different ways to reach their voters safely, uh, because a campaign really is is an act of, of, of outreach between a candidate and a voter. And, and that's harder to do when you can't knock on somebody's door or, or talk to them in person. Uh, and, and of course, the way we vote is changing uh, in the in in the most sort of rapid way we have seen in our lifetimes uh state after state changing its voting procedures from top to bottom in ways that potentially uh could could have some some difficult consequences because our election system is so fragile and was before any of this pandemic came along Uh, and then lastly the the ways that the national mood has really changed the way that the pandemic has has changed the way we look at each other as Americans, changed the way we feel about the course that our country is on. Just looking at the, the that right track wrong track poll number that pollsters are always measuring it has plummeted in a very short period of time we went from being uh, a pretty optimistic country uh, to a, a, a very pessimistic country more or less overnight and that's had some profound ramifications for for what we're looking for in our leaders for what what we're asking of the candidates in this election So uh, so we tried to bring that all together in in one big piece and and think about how all of these different pieces sort of reverberate off one another.
1: So let's break that down on a couple of different levels. Let's first talk about the party convention scheduled for later this month. We, of course, will be covering whatever happens with the Democrats and the Republicans. You have to go back to 1976, the last time uh, a Republican convention had any level of uncertainty when, of course, then former Governor Ronald Reagan was challenging President Gerald Ford, and then in 1980 when Senator Edward M. Kennedy was challenging Jimmy Carter. But since then, these conventions have really been a PR show for the parties. So does this year, does this forever change how the parties and the media looks at these conventions?
2: Well, you know, I was at that 2016 convention that you played the the clip from, and there was some drama there, right? There was a small number of delegates that did try to use the convention to bump Trump off the ticket. They, of course, uh, were not successful at all, but uh, but there was a little bit more drama than we're used to. But uh, but when you think about the conversation that we've been having about things like working remotely, uh, you look at the ways that we've been forced to adapt to these temporary, hopefully, circumstances, and a lot of people are talking about, well, will this change the way we do it uh, going forward, even when even when there's not... Uh, a a plague raging out there. And so I think it's fair to ask those same questions about the political process. Is there any going back, given that the the conventions uh, don't actually do much besides, uh, you know, create a bunch of uh, primetime programming for the networks? will we still want to gather in person every four years now the party activists who are scattered around the country they do really value these conventions like any industry that has a convention you know if you if you are uh, if you work in consumer tech and go to CES for example uh, it's always valuable for people who are who, who are interested in the same things to, to come together and get to know one another but does it have any value for the broader public does it really have any value for, for the rest of the country that's not uh, a or Democratic activists, Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of soul-searching on that question next time around looking at, well, which parts of this are really essential and which are sort of relics of that earlier age when when the delegates really were responsible for, for choosing the nominee and running mate rather than just uh, providing the applause track for, for the nominating speech.
1: And Molly Ball, so often in the past we have talked to you about uh, the dynamics and the elements of a successful campaign, and one of the most important typically has been the ground game, knocking on doors, having supporters meet face-to-face with potential Voters, that also has been upended this year.
2: That's right, and there's an interesting divergence between the parties happening here. Uh, there's been a very lively debate inside the the activist left and mostly among Democrats about whether it's ethical to go out and knock on doors, and different groups have made different decisions. Uh, some. Uh, grassroots liberal groups have been still sending canvassers out trying to do it in a safe way but but one prominent national group actually had to cancel its canvassing effort when uh, there was an outcry among some of its paid canvassers and some of them were diagnosed with covid so they've since retrenched and are going to try to figure out how whether and how to go back out in the fall the biden campaign has more or less ruled out doing any kind of door knocking and it and it has been the democratic party more than the republicans that has emphasized this ground level organizing aspect of campaigns uh in recent history uh but the republicans say that they are knocking on a million doors every week we've seen you know this part partisan divide in the way that people look at the safety issues surrounding COVID. And it extends to the campaign as well. You have uh, Republicans continuing to hold in-person events, sometimes maskless, sometimes without distancing, sometimes being attacked by their Democratic opponents for for this. So it's become a sort of political football in the way that everything associated with uh, the pandemic has been. Uh, and you have ca- campaigns also looking for uh, creative ways to uh, bring the campaign into the virtual realm. You know, campaigns have been going more and more digital in recent years anyway, uh, and this is true of so many aspects of COVID that we've seen it sort of accelerate trends that were already already happening, whether it's, whether it's remote work or, 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 or remote school uh, or, or voting by mail. Uh, and the digital campaign is one of those too, where uh, candidates are already looking for ways to reach donors online, but now they're coming up with more creative ways to do Zoom fundraisers. They were already uh, making a lot of online content and online ads and looking for ways to push them out to their supporters on various platforms. Uh, now that is really front and center as the main interface of the campaign, even Trump, who, of course, uh, who, whose political identity is so tied up in his signature rallies, he has been unable to, to do those after the the debacle that occurred when he tried to resume them in Tulsa. And so he's been doing these, these tele-rallies, which are essentially conference calls, where he uh, gets on the phone with uh, several thousand supporters in, in some key targeted state. Uh, but it clearly is not as satisfying as, as the give and take of a big crowd uh, cheering and clapping at everything you say. So I think it's very much a work in progress as candidates and campaigns from the presidential level all the way down to you know school board or city council try to figure out how they can create those interactions with voters that really make the world go around in campaigns
1: well let's talk about that rally in Tulsa Oklahoma it is a ruby red state solid republican the trump campaign saying that they'd received up to a million people who expressed interest in attending and as you point out we covered it live there was a sparse crowd didn't fill up the arena how was that a seminal moment for the Trump campaign and maybe perhaps for the president himself?
2: Well, I think it really made them realize that this idea that people are worried about dying of coronavirus was not fake news, right? That people uh, across the political spectrum, and we've seen this, you know, we talk so much about how divided we are as a country and how politicized everything is and how even something like mask wearing is uh received differently by partisans on different sides of the aisle, but actually what we've seen in response to the pandemic is an unusual uh, degree of unanimity. Uh, Despite the attempts of a lot of, of politicians to turn this into a red or blue issue, you see resounding support mask wearing across the political spectrum, even if there is a slight divergence in degree between the parties. You see broad support for uh, things like lockdown orders despite these relatively fringe, you know, uh, anti-lockdown protests in a few places. So, you know, somebody who charges into a grocery store and starts throwing things and if if they are made to wear a mask that's always going to go make a viral video clip but that really doesn't represent the mainstream where there's been a remarkable degree of consensus so I think what Tulsa really drove home to uh, the president and his allies uh, was that most Americans want to be safe no matter what candidate they support and that A lot of Trump supporters uh, still don't want to be out there mingling in public in ways that feel dangerous to them. Uh, So that really forced them back to the drawing board. There was an attempt to to do another rally in New Hampshire. And then. uh, he said that was being canceled because of weather, although my reporting and others at the time was that that was sort of a, a pretext. and uh, No weather ended up transpiring that evening, and the president uh, this week actually uh, admitted that it was really because of concerns about safety. So uh, no matter how much uh, the president or, or people around him uh, sometimes try to deny that there's concern about this or insist that everything's fine and people want to get back out there. Uh, it, it, it was really driven home to them by that, that Tulsa rally that they did need to make some accommodations for this situation.
1: The Time Magazine cover story how COVID-19 changed everything about the 2020 election. This is C-SPAN's The Weekly.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: I'm Steve Scully in Washington, and we're talking with Molly Ball of Time magazine. Another issue that is rising to the surface, the debate over mail-in voting and the president, critical of states like Nevada, but very supportive of states like Florida and Arizona, which, by the way, have Republican governors versus a Democratic governor.
2: That's right. Now, Trump has tried to draw a distinction between uh, male voting and absentee voting, and there actually is a difference according to election efforts. In a state like Nevada, they are actually sending a ballot to every voter. It's different in uh, in a state like Florida or a lot of other states, Republican and Democrat-run uh, election administrations, where they're not sending every voter a ballot, but they're sending every registered voter an application for a ballot. So an absentee ballot is, is considered something that you have to ask for. Now, a lot of states are, are doing this for the first time, sending absentee ballot applications to everyone, uh, removing the need for an excuse for an absentee ballot right in 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 my state virginia and a lot of others in the past you've had to uh uh, sign an affidavit that says well i'm not i i have to vote absentee because i won't be i won't be here or i'm disabled or there's some reason that i cannot vote in person states including virginia are removing that requirement removing things like you know notarization and witnessing requirements to make it easier for people to vote from home, but still stopping short of sending everybody a ballot, which uh, some conservative uh, voting experts say that just leaves all these ballots lying around that people may not have even wanted and and, and opens the door, creates an opportunity uh, for fraud to happen. And there have been a couple of isolated cases of that. Nevertheless, uh, in, in, in almost every way, and certainly when it comes to ballot security, the experts say they're really... Really isn't a difference between vote by mail and absentee voting and the distinction that the president is trying to draw is mostly based on where his friends are right which states he thinks uh, he he thinks are likely to to vote for him and which are likely to vote against him and uh, again in spite of his attempts to turn this into a red-blue divide you really do have uh, states uh, of both uh, political leanings across the country Dramatically ramping up uh people's ability to to vote from home ability to vote remotely uh not all uh, there are still some some outliers and 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 so that's led a lot of election officials uh, experts to worry that that there's uh, a lot of room for for bad things to happen uh, and and like everything else that 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 coronavirus has sort of exposed. This is a system that already had a lot of problems, right? If if the pandemic hadn't happened, you can imagine that you and I'd be sitting here talking about foreign election interference, allegations of voter fraud, all of these issues surrounding our election infrastructure uh, that were already very serious. And then the pandemic comes along and simultaneously uh, exacerbates those issues, uh, but also forces forces action so um, we've seen this this wholesale transformation in a lot of places of the ways that people are going to vote in uh, in ways that could that potentially could could cause uh, a lot of confusion and a lot of delays uh, once the once the election rolls around
1: and one follow-up to that point and you write about it in your Time magazine piece is the president essentially trying to sow the seeds of doubt regarding the outcome of this election in November
2: that is the concern of a lot of experts, again, of, of, of both political persuasions. Uh, that the and this is a drumbeat that, that Trump has has been uh, keeping up since since before the 2016 election, and uh, when he said he you know he couldn't guarantee that he would accept uh, the result. And then, of course, and now, of course, Republicans accuse Democrats of being the ones who never accepted the result, the legitimacy of the the, the 2016 election, although, of course, Hillary Clinton did concede uh, the day after. Um, But but again, we have uh, the president over and over saying this election is going to be rigged. This election is going to be improper. The very existence of people voting by mail, a system that existed in many states, long before Donald Trump was a candidate for anything, but just saying that the existence of that system automatically guarantees that this election will be fraudulent. Uh, and, and, and part of the reason that that's potentially so serious, number one, because, you know, democracy relies upon a certain measure of, of trust that people trust in the system, trust in institutions, believe that it's an accurate representation of the popular will, Uh, But number two, because there are so many unique challenges to this election, because there's going to be such an unusual volume of people voting by mail, uh, it probably will take a while to count all those votes, and you can imagine a situation where you know the, the the early vote count goes for one candidate, but then as more votes come in, it starts to change, and it's then very easy for that candidate to say, oh, well somebody's monkeying with the numbers, somebody's doing something improper, creating doubt in the minds of their supporters, potentially making their supporters want to take to the streets because they feel that their votes are being taken away from them, and that's very dangerous when it's not warranted, when it's when it's merely you know uh, ginned up in in one's perceived political interests that really endangers uh, the bedrock of our democracy. And so uh, there's a lot of concern that that, that that people have accurate information, that people understand that the vote will take a while to count. We very well may not know the winner of, of the presidential or of many other close elections on election night. And that's okay. That's not something going wrong. In fact, that's the system functioning as it is supposed to function. And we should all just take a deep breath and wait for those votes to get counted.
1: Let's turn to the presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. He will accept the nomination in Delaware. He won't be traveling to Milwaukee. And as you well know, he has done only a handful of events, has rarely traveled outside of Delaware, maybe to neighboring Pennsylvania for a campaign speech. My question is, can that approach continue or will he face more pressure to be more visible?
2: I think the answer to both of those questions is yes. What we're seeing is uh, this has become a major talking point of the Trump campaign, accusing Biden of hiding, accusing him of refusing to face the voters, accusing him of you know, not wanting to to answer questions. Now, Biden has has taken questions from the press, and he's done a number of interviews. He just, as you said, has not been physically present in a lot of other locations. Uh, And I think Democrats feel that this is a bit of a desperation play uh, by Trump and the Republicans, uh, because, look, all the public polls point in one direction, which is that, that that Trump is a very endangered incumbent. He's pretty badly underwater in all of those states that that he needed that that, that he needs to win if he wants to repeat his his electoral success from from 2016. Uh, and and part of the reason is because you know I think it, it I think. It's fair to say of this president, he is very good at commanding people's attention. He's been basically the center of attention uh, since he started his campaign, and that's continued with him as president. Um, But when you're the incumbent, you want to turn the election from a referendum into a choice. You want to convince people that they need to vote based on which candidate uh, they dislike less, not on just what they think of the incumbent, particularly when you're a quite unpopular uh, incumbent like Donald Trump. They have not been able to make this campaign into a choice between Trump and Biden. It really, in the minds of so many voters from all the information, all the data we're seeing, they see this as a referendum on Trump, uh, and 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 many vote, Many voters have a negative. Uh, opinion of the incumbent, and that's frustrating to the Trump campaign. So they want to drive Biden out of that "quote unquote" basement. He's not actually in his basement anymore, but but you know they want to make him come out and and hopefully for them uh, makes make some kind of mistakes, trip up, have some kind of embarrassing gaffe, uh, so that they can refocus people's attention away from Trump uh, and the and the many scandals he's been involved in to try to convince people that in the way that they did with Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, that the alternative is worse.
1: And part of the narrative in your very lengthy and very well-written piece is how from mid-March on, the mood of this country has changed significantly. So let me ask you that question. Generally speaking, what is the mood of America right now?
2: Yeah, I talked to a lot of um, pollsters, Democratic and Republican pollsters, uh, you know, data people, political scientists, people who are looking at this issue of of public sentiment for, you know, how are we as a country Processing this pandemic and how are we connecting it to the election? Uh, You hear a lot about the quote unquote fundamentals of presidential elections, right? There are a lot of political scientists who have different models where you sort of plug in, well, how's the economy doing and what's the incumbent's approval rating? And then without anybody voting, I'll tell you who's going to win the election. Uh, But a lot of people, a lot of analysts feel like you kind of have to throw that out this year. A lot of people, yes, they're distressed about how dismal the economy is, but they may not be blaming uh, the president for it because. Because this pandemic clearly uh, came out of uh, was was externally imposed was was a sort of uh, almost like a natural disaster so a lot of those typical patterns of presidential elections might not apply in this case uh, and and one of the curiosities of the pandemic is yes uh, Trump has been getting a very bad grade from the public for his handling of it uh, by about a 20. 20- point margin. Uh, people say they disapprove of, of the president's handling of this crisis, uh, but his approval rating hasn't changed all that much. In fact, it's not as, as low now as it was back in August 2017 when it bottomed out uh, after the, the white supremacist violence in Charlottesville. So people's minds are pretty much made up about Trump, uh, and he may not be able to change that very much uh, in a positive or negative direction. That being said, it's clear that you know if if COVID hadn't happened, we would have Trump out there at all of these you know packed arena rallies, talking about how great the economy was and how much credit he deserves for that, and how he has made America great and therefore deserves a second term. Uh, And and he's had to make a more convoluted argument now that that's not really available to him to say, well, look at that great economy I created before this happened and and give me a chance to to, to do that again. Uh, And so it's changed the arguments uh, that the candidates are making. Uh, It's changed the salience of the issues in a lot of voters' minds, where before we saw Trump really focused on issues like trade and immigration. Uh, Voters right now are very fixated on public health and the economy, this 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 public health crisis is the top of everybody's minds, and we've seen uh, Trump and some of his allies try to try to change the subject, try to make this about people uh, supposedly rioting in the streets of all of these cities about urban crime and so on. Uh, and and people by and large have have not uh, have not been distracted from their concern uh, with the the coronavirus. Now, as you mentioned, we've had. Uh, a major focus on racial justice and, the, and the, the protests in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. Um, and, and, and that was interesting to me because it was a sort of moment of national solidarity. Uh, it, it really was not a very divisive moment for the country or something that registered all that differently with people of different political persuasions. What we saw was that across the board, to a really staggering degree, uh, you know, three-quarters of Americans— uh, approved of those protests, thought they were justified. We saw people pouring out onto the streets in, in a way that I think really sort of poignantly expressed a desire for communion, a desire for solidarity, a desire to to get out of our houses where we feel so lonely and worried and isolated and fearful and anxious uh, but also a desire to have some kind of shared experience as a country uh, and uh, and and that's that's a that's a difficult mood for the country to be in when you're an opponent when you're an incumbent who's widely perceived as divisive even by some of your supporters there are people be I'm sure there are people who would say well, well Trump is divisive in a way that's good in a way that needs to be done in a way that you know he's he's taking it to uh to his enemies uh, but that's not really the mood that we're in as a nation right now and and so it's interesting to see how the whole narrative of this of this election has been reoriented uh, by this crisis.
1: So let me conclude with one final point. As you write in your piece from the second half of the primary season to the conventions coming up, fundraising, campaign rallies, candidates logging, long hours on the campaign trail, all of that has changed because of coronavirus. After we get through the convention process, the next major pivot moment will be the presidential debates. So from your standpoint, how critical will they be in 2020?
2: Well, we'll see. Uh, first of all, uh, we've seen there's now, there's always a debate about the debates, right? The candidates trying to use them to score political points. Uh, and, and so the Trump campaign has tried to uh, set an earlier debate because uh, actually, before the currently scheduled debates happen, people will already be voting. People can uh, request and send in uh, early vote uh, ballots. In, in several states before that first presidential debate is uh, is scheduled to begin so um, so you know given the political patterns we've seen since Trump was elected given that that it has been a, a basically a steady stream of defeats for the Republican Party a steady backlash against Trump on the part of the majority of American voters this is a president Uh, who's never cracked 50% in his approval rating uh, and in fact has been over 50% in disapproval for most of his term. Uh, So it's quite possible that nothing anybody could say or do is going to change the minds of that majority of the American electorate at this point. Now, I the reason we like debates is because anything can happen and because they are a chance for the candidates to interact in an unscripted setting and you never know uh, what kind of revelation will come out of them, I personally would, would never cast a ballot in an election before hearing the candidates you know uh, debate each other in that way. Uh, but but I would be surprised if if there's a huge, if there's a seismic shift in momentum for either candidate based on the debates, Uh, In most years, but particularly this year, I mean, back in 2016, uh, most observers, uh, whether you looked at polls or sort of listened to the 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 pundit chatter, um, most observers thought that Hillary Clinton won every single one of those debates. And yet uh, it wasn't enough to 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 put her over the top in the Electoral College. So we will see if anything earth shattering happens in these debates. But I think it would have to be pretty earth shattering. Uh, to change the the political patterns that are baked in at this moment.
1: The COVID-19 pandemic has changed everything from how the campaign is conducted to how we vote to what we value. The reporting of Molly Ball, the cover story of Time magazine, also available at time.com. Thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: And a reminder, you can find this podcast and others on our website, at cspan.org slash podcasts and be sure to follow us on social media on Twitter or at cSPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.